Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. As always, you're with Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University, and Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Hello again, Alan. Good to be back. We are recording this in the evening of Thursday, the 28th of November, and it has been a bit of a crazy week in terms of news, with two bombshell stories here in Australia that relate to China one on the defection and asylum application of a potential Chinese intelligence agent, and the second regarding attempts to place someone in federal parliament who would, in some sense, also be acting for the Chinese government. So we're going to begin the podcast on China, discussing these and a few other stories, and then we'll finish with an update on the Hong Kong protests in wake of recent elections and action in the US Congress. But first, all things China. Alan, if I can start with a meta comment slash question here. China is making headlines almost every day, and now we're getting bombshell stories like the ones we've seen in the past week with increasing frequency, Just uh, not just in Australia, but around the world. And this seems to be the reality that we are now living in. And I expect this will persist indefinitely. As my colleague Rory Medcalf has said, we should expect a front page story on China to appear in the press every week for the next decade or longer. Now, on one level, this is fine. China is very important to Australia. But Alan, is it okay that this importance translates into such a dominance of public discourse in the international affairs domain? I mean, take this podcast. We recently did a China-focused episode. It was very popular, and we should probably do more, given the breadth and complexity of these issues. But we weren't planning on doing that anytime soon, and the news has compelled us to return to China anyway. Is this podcast destined to become a China-focused discussion? And would that be a bad thing? Or does the relentless focus on China exhaust or irk you? I'm not sure about irk, but it certainly exhausts. Um the the reasons are you know pretty clear and we've talked about them often enough uh, before on the uh, on the podcast. China's growth means that there are very few aspects of Australian life now um, in which China uh, isn't prominent. You can take the news stories of the past few weeks and you know the price of milk yes. uh, has a China dimension with. Um, with possible uh, sales uh, to a Chinese uh, company, mm. uh, and you know, f- international uh, events, of course, Hong Hong Kong, and domestic uh, developments as well as we'll get on to uh, talk about. So probably not surprising that uh, there are so many stories, but the media focus on these, the exclusion of other international. Uh, stories I do think is a is a bit of a problem. I think you're going to talk a bit more about the media uh, later on and the sort of um, the reasons that they are so uh, focused on clickable stories. And we've certainly had 
lots of those in the past <laughs> week. Uh, but look, I, I think there's another issue which we don't think about as much, and that is the absence of the United States from international stories. The focus of US attention is so intensely on what's going on inside Washington and the uh, American engagement in the world so much less frequent and intense than we've seen in the uh, in the past mm. that I think there's a sort of gap that the China stories are beginning to fill. Mm. Yeah, I, now, I what what do you what do you, what what do you think? I mean, you you, you do a lot of the preparation uh, for this. Do you find <laughs> things other than China to uh, talk about? Well. I don't know. As as a professional academic who hasn't worked in the fast-paced world of politics and policymaking, I do find the constant barrage of news overwhelming, I guess. You know, things are changing so quickly, and, and not just with China, but the United States withdrawing and, and, and becoming a very different uh, type of country is also shocking. And, and I have an analytical framework that I use, a way of viewing the world and assumptions about how the world works. And that's developed, I've developed that slowly over the course of my academic career. And by design, it's somewhat flexible, but it's not that flexible. And, and now it seems to be a regular occurrence that some breaking news story, mostly but not only about China, as I said, you've got Brexit and, and Trump and populism, but these stories sort of disorient me in, in a way that I'm not sure I have the tools to, to grasp them and understand them um, easily. But having said that, the feeling of being overwhelmed is balanced by the fact that what China is doing is so interesting. Uh, I study geoeconomics and economic statecraft primarily, and I came to this field in part because I had an undergraduate background in economics, which I merged with a, a PhD focus on security. And I studied China in part because it's simply the most interesting practitioner of geoeconomics, and its impact on the world more broadly is equally interesting. So I suppose the price of not being bored is being overwhelmed by non-boredom every now and then. Anyway, let's turn to the news at hand. And we, as we have foreshadowed, over the past weekend, there were two big stories that were broken here in Australia by the Nine newspapers and the current affairs TV show 60 Minutes, which is also produced by Nine. The first involved a Chinese national uh, going by the name of Wang Liqiang, who is currently in Australia seeking political asylum, and he claims to be a secret Chinese agent of sorts. At the time of recording, I understand that Mr. Wang is hiding in Sydney somewhere, and there are reports that he has given a sworn statement to ASIO regarding knowledge he has of Beijing's covert activities in places including Hong Kong, Taiwan, and Australia, some of which he claims to have been personally involved with. He was interviewed on camera for the 60-minute story, and in that story, he said that Chinese agents had infiltrated Hong Kong's democracy movement, were deeply involved in the upcoming Taiwan elections, and he even said that the Chinese government had ordered overseas assassinations. Now, there is a big question mark regarding the extent to which his claims are true and that he is who he says he is. The Chinese government says he's a criminal who has been convicted of fraud and is now wanted by police. And I note even in the past few hours has released video footage um, from 2016, I believe, which purports to show him in court pleading guilty. Though I watched the footage and it's very hard to see the face of the person who's in the dock. Records uh, 
show that there was a man or is a man named Wang Li Chung who got into multiple disputes with the law and with other people, legal disputes from the years 2013 to 2019. Although the defector, Wang, here in Australia, says he moved to Hong Kong in 2014. So there's some question about whether these stories line up. Anyway, Alan, before we get into this a bit more, what was your initial reaction when this story dropped? You know, and, and how have you viewed events as they've unfolded and the story's been scrutinised over the past few days? Well, my, my initial reaction was to look at those sort of shadowy uh, front page photographs of, um, <laughs> of a defector. And, uh, and I'm afraid my sort of uh, antenna begin, began to quiver at that point because mm. few of the great espionage coups of our time have announced themselves on the front page of, uh, of newspapers. And as you read the story, I thought to myself, there are few 26-year-olds, in my experience, who've had access to what one journalist was calling the mother load yes. of, uh, of intelligence. So, look, I don't, uh, I obviously have no, no idea, but I did also listen to the carefully crafted words of, um, of ministers, uh, all, all of which said, you know, variations on, uh, you know, we have effective security services and we're going to wait for them to uh, to deal with this, and I thought that's fair enough. ASIO can uh, can sort this one out. Mm. Uh, what what was your initial reaction when you saw it? Similar. I wondered, and I posed this question on Twitter out into the void: Why was this guy going on public? Why was he putting his face on television? If he was as valuable as you know the media is making him out to be, I would have thought our people would wrap him in cotton wool and stow him in some secret location and, 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 and until he'd given them everything he had and then, you know, presumably hide him away somewhere indefinitely. And I thought, well, going on TV is a huge risk and so why why would you do that? Um, and so it was fascinating, I think, as in the hours after the stories broke, uh, to stay on Twitter. It's one of the times I think social media can be helpful because people are doing real-time analysis of the documents, which to its credit, you know, the Nine had posted online uh, in order to analyse, you know, the veracity of these claims. And and soon, pretty soon, some holes emerged. Um, one example is that the, the fake South Korean passport he had seemed to be a very poor forgery. You know, the names weren't translated properly and his translated Korean name was a woman's name. Um, but on the other side, you had these allegations from the Chinese that he was a criminal, but that story as well then came under, under, under question, whether his details were in the correct databases, you know, whether the passports, the stamps and his passports lined up with when, where he was supposed to be, according to the Chinese government. So, you know, it was kind of a bit of a, you know, a Rorschach test. You know, there was evidence if you believed he was the real deal um, for you to, to back up that belief. And if you believed he was a complete fraud, there was evidence to support that belief as well. Um, and so... I, I did. I still don't know what to think in terms of what he actually said. There wasn't very much that was surprising, and the only thing that genuinely seemed new was naming a, a few names of individuals. But um, yeah, I think for me the jury the jury is still out. But this sort of leads me to my next question, Alan. If you watch the sixty minute segment um, and and you read the reporting and the shadowy photographs that got splashed across the front page, they do I think have a fairly confident tone to them that this is a substantial deal, it's an historic event and needs to be taken very seriously. And it might be, but it also might not be. And 
I fully understand the calculus of the media here. They're going to err on the side of telling a story that gets folks' attention, that gets clicks, as you mentioned before. And they'll justify this on the, in, the, in the name of getting the information out there so that it can be scrutinised, and that's okay. But it didn't, equally, it didn't take much work for the armchair investigators on Twitter to start raising questions about this story, which made me wonder about the appropriateness of the confidence in the reporting. And I thought then of a speech given by former Prime Minister Paul Keating um, at the Australian Strategic Forum in Sydney on the 18th of November, so just a few weeks ago. And we're going to talk more about this speech more in a moment, but I want to read one quote. The Australian media has been recreant in its duty to the public in failing to present a balanced picture of the rise, legitimacy and importance of China, preferring instead to traffic in side plays dressed up with cosmetics of sedition and risk. So, Alan, can I ask for your comment on, on the Keating critique here in light of, of these particular stories? Well, look, I, I agree it be, would be much better if more of the uh, China commentators actually knew something uh, about, uh, about China. Uh, and um, I think that Keating was simply pointing to what you and I were just talking about before, that is the sort of attractiveness of uh, stories about, uh, about spies uh, outweighs the attractiveness to readers of stories about the sort of boring subjects that you and I are, are, uh, are interested in. Mm. Uh, so I think, I think Keating was, you know, basically calling for the media to be a bit more uh, responsible in the way they covered the uh, the rise of um, of China, um, I, I, there's always a tendency on the part of the media, and it's uh, un entirely understandable, to tie everything to you know local local conditions, you know lo local uh, local people and local um, uh, events, and that means I think that we miss out in much of the media coverage on some of the bigger, longer stories, even critical stories, about what's going on in China itself. Mm. Yeah, I think I agree with that. Fear sells. And here you've got a big, bad foreign power, communist authoritarian regime to boot, and that's a potent narrative. But I think we need to remember that this is something the United States has been dealing with for decades too, maybe not as much in a country like Australia, but around the world where Washington's interests have clashed more directly with local countries. You know, I think back to when I was studying uh, international relations at the, in, uh, in my master's degree back in 2007, and we spent an entire week studying the phenomenon of anti-Americanism, which is something that US political scientists actually studied, and I, I think has receded a lot in recent years. But on the ground, US diplomats have employed strategies to try to minimise anti-American sentiment over the years, and I think that taking an innate hostility in some places is given in their work. And I don't think China has yet acquired the thick skin and dexterity needed to, to handle being public enemy number one. You know, Beijing is more used to playing the victim, which isn't nearly as persuasive when you're as big and, for many, as scary as they are. So I think, to summarise, I see this as a burden of, of being a superpower, a challenge for Beijing to manage, and I don't expect our friends in the media to be that responsive to a politician's call to do things differently. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm sure that's, uh, that's <laughs> right. And, uh, there was, 
No, you know, I used to work for uh, for Keating, and I'm sure there were many times when he would have liked to be able to direct the uh, the Australian media to do what he uh, what he <laughs> wanted. But he must know by now that this is not possible. Mm. Well, let's move to the second story, which also came out of the 60 Minutes report on Sunday night, and this is that a Chinese the Chinese intelligence tried to install an agent of sorts in federal parliament. The man in question is named Nick Zhao. And he was an Australian citizen and luxury car dealer and member of the Liberal Party in a branch in the branch of Chisholm in Melbourne's East, which is the seat now held by Gladys Liu, who is also a controversial figure, as Australians will know. Now, it is alleged that Mr. Zhao contacted ASIO about a year ago and said that he had been approached by another man regarding a plan to provide Zhao with a million dollars, I think, to set up a new business and run for the seat of Chisholm. Now, to cap off this remarkable story, Mr. Zhao was subsequently found dead in a motel room in Melbourne in March. And reports coming out from the past few days since that story broke indicate that the local police believe he may have died of an accidental prescription drug overdose, but a coronial inquiry is underway. It still, to me, Alan, sounds like a great spy novel rather than reality. Um, and so before we get to ASIO's response, which I think is very interesting, can I just get another quick reaction to this second story from you? Yeah, well, again, I didn't obviously know anything about it, but I did think to myself as I was uh, you know, watching and reading about this that if I were in Beijing and I wanted to place a long-term sleeper in the Australian Parliament, with the objective of you know rising to the top of the tree and <laughs> uh, and being able to do my uh, do my bidding, I would not choose a 26 year old luxury car dealer with uh, business problems yes. and dodgy connections mm. uh, as part of as part of my uh, my plan. You know there there was anyone who knows Australian politics uh, knows. Uh, how hard it is to get uh, to get pre-selection, and so I thought to myself, well, there's a million dollars down the drain <laughs> if the story if the story is true. Ah, oh, dear. Well, making this case particularly interesting to people like you and me, Alan, was on the Sunday night after 60 Minutes aired. ASIO's head, and his title is the Director General of Security, and his name is Mike Burgess, released a public statement, and the statement begins, quote. The reporting on Nine's 60 Minutes contains allegations that ASIO takes very seriously. As Director General of Security, I am committed to protecting Australia's democracy and sovereignty. Australians can be reassured that ASIO was previously aware of matters that have been reported today and has been actively investigating them. He then states that he won't comment on this particular case, but then he finishes by saying, quote, Hostile foreign intelligence activity continues to pose a real threat to our nation and its security. ASIO will continue to confront and counter foreign interference and espionage in Australia. End quote. Alan, I imagine that ASIO has a balance to strike here between wanting to reassure the public that it knows what's going on and, and, and is on top of things, but without sparking panic and overreaction. Could you sort of put yourselves in their shoes for a moment and talk us through what they might have been thinking when they found out that this story was going to air? Well, I'm pretty sure that the first uh, reaction would have been, uh, 
words to the effect of "Goodness me, what's going? What's going <laughs> oh, what have we got here? Uh, oh bother! Oh bother!" So it, you know, they would obviously recognise it immediately as a story which was going to uh, consume a lot of media attention. Uh, they would be asking themselves, uh, or the senior officers would be asking, "What did we know, and uh, how did we handle what we uh, what we knew?" And uh, then the next issue would be, how do we reassure the public who will be very interested in this, that we're on top of it? And I think that that's probably what prompted the uh, statement from Mike Burgess. Is, what, 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 did, what did you, what, what was your reaction well, to it? Well, I, I don't, I mean, I've never studied ASIO and, uh, and I mean, I think, those Australians who have maybe have been studying the, the terrorism threat since 9-11 might know more about this me, than me, but it did strike me as quite unusual and that you know the Director General of Security would come out and respond so quickly to a particular story. And I, I'm not sure, Alan, if there's much precedent for this, but it struck me that, that it itself is now setting a precedent, that the next time we have a bombshell story on the current affairs program, especially one that's about... Chinese interference in Australia's democracy and, and so forth, um, that falls within the remit of ASIO, people are going to be wondering, well, is, is ASIO going to release in a similar statement? And if they don't release one, um, is, should they be inferring that ASIO you know, is, is not on top of things or is finding out things for the first time, etc.? Like, I'm just trying to think about the dynamic of the fact that he made the statement rather than, you know, the, than what he was responding to specifically. Do you have, can you offer any insight over the, over the years of whether this is, is unusual or, or not? Yeah, I think it is unusual. But on the other hand, uh, Mike Burgess is a new Director General of Security, so he'll have his own uh, response to mm. to the media and so on. He might be trying to set a different tone. And the statement, after all, uh, really didn't say much beyond we take allegations seriously, we're committed to protecting uh, security. In this case, they did say they'd been previously aware of the allegations, but that's just a factual statement. Mm. <clears throat> so I don't, I don't think it's um, uh, a worrying precedent uh, okay. for ASIO. Well, let's zoom out to the sort of the politics of the bilateral relationship. Um, you know, as we've discussed repeatedly, Alan, you know, we as a country are trying to decide what we actually think about China and on what basis we want to engage with China. And this was the topic of our recent episode and, of course, your piece in Australian Foreign Affairs. Now we have this bombshell reporting, and it follows indeed on the heels of a, a report on Four Corners, another Australian news program a few weeks ago about Chinese influence in Australian universities, again with the scary music and dark shadowy frames. And I'm just wondering, Alan, should we expect these stories to influence and indeed constrain our political leaders as they're making policy? You know, we try to, to, to put ideas out there. We, you know, we think they're good ones to contribute to the debate. But are we are people like you and me being drowned out by these narratives that would fit more comfortably with a, a John le Carre novel? I, th I think we are. Um, <laughs> the, um, uh, I'm, I'm always rem reminded uh, of um, something that Gordon Samuel, who is a judge of the New South Wales Supreme Court, who... Um, conducted a, an inquiry into ASIS in the uh, mid-1990s. Uh, in, the, in the report which he wrote at the end of it, he said um, something like, 
the fascination which journalists apparently feel for security organisations tends to expel judgment and restraint. And the point he was making was that, you know, normally cynical journalists who, you know, won't believe anything they're told uh, when confronted with a top secret uh, stamp uh, are willing to abandon disbelief quite, uh, quite readily. All these stories are changing, I think, the tone of the debate in Australia. I think they do make it more difficult for uh, political leaders to respond carefully and cautiously mm. uh, to what's going on. So I think you're, I think you're right. I think uh, there is, um, it is a different environment uh, in which to debate China than the one we might have had even, um, you know, 12 months ago. Mm. Yeah, this, is is that your is that your impression I, as well? I, I want to bring it back to Keating's speech actually, because um, he began the speech uh, talking about the consequences of anarchy, uh, and that's a, a concept that we use heavily in international relations theory. And he said the system is anarchic. You know, don't expect that the peace and stability that we have enjoyed uh, in the post Cold War period, indeed in the post post war period, to endure. And I thought, I sort of, my eyes perked up when I when I when I read that. I'm like, oh, this is great. He's he's using some international relations theory. But then, he, obviously, he goes on to criticise the media towards the end. And I think that he kind of tied himself in a bit of a knot with that argument because anarchy in international international relations theory. And and forgive me, listeners, for going full academic for a minute. Is 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 viewed it's as why this... we love you. It's why we love you, Darren. <laughs> it's why the people come for my hot takes <laughs> yeah. on IR theory. But it, it's a very important concept in the realist tradition as this structural force which is created by the fact that nation states are sovereign and and don't answer to a global government that could provide them with security and so anarchy is is seen as influencing how countries behave you know the, the main way this happens is through the creation of fear you know and that fear emerges because every country has to safeguard its own security it has to safeguard its own survival and so those who believe in the power of anarchy, and, and this is the, the realist tradition, argue that this fear is essentially unavoidable. Nation states will feel it, and it's why um, we see so much competitive behaviour in the international system, even among countries who are inherently peaceful. And it's a very hard force to overcome. But then to bring that back to this discussion and, and Keating's critique of the media and, and the media's focus on sedition and risk, if you believe in the, the power of anarchy, these are exactly the kinds of reactions that you would expect to see inside a country that's dealing with, you know, the, the consequences of anarchy. Um, you, you would expect security narratives to dominate. You would expect fear to be a potent, you know, public um, narrative. And so to, to tell people to calm down is in effect to say, well, you should be able to overcome the consequences of anarchy. And that's not impossible, but Keating himself is acknowledging that it's a powerful force and a and difficult thing to do. So I think that's sort of an interesting, an, sort of an interesting dynamic. But Alan, like, let's try to move on. But we should probably leave the entire podcast there. But there are still some stories, even on China, that demand our attention. And there's one quick one that I do want to mention about, which is the denial of of two visas to federal um, parliamentarians, Andrew Hastie and James Patterson, to visit China. They were supposed to go on a trip that was going to be sponsored by the think tank China Matters. Now, of course, Hastie um, is the chair of the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security and has been one of the loudest um, and most sceptical voices on China in this country. 
Um, and he, indeed, he himself featured prominently in the 60 Minutes report on Sunday night. Now, to understand why they had their visas denied, we can look to a statement that was issued um, by the Chinese embassy in Canberra. Quote, The Chinese people do not welcome those who make unwarranted attacks, wantonly exert pressure on China, challenge China's sovereignty, disrespect China's dignity, and undermine mutual trust between China and Australia. As long as the people concerned genuinely repent and redress their mistakes, view China with objectivity and reason, respect China's system and mode of development chosen by the Chinese people, the door of dialogue and exchanges will always open, always remain open. And Alan, the reason I want to bring this up is because, of course, you are on the board of directors of China Matters. So can you talk a bit about the logic of these visits and how these events have affected your organization's pursuit of its objectives? Uh, well, China Matters started undertaking these uh, trips uh, because it's important that Australian politicians visit China and other overseas countries, uh, but they understandably you know, don't want to do that Do that under the auspices of, uh, you know, foreign sponsors, the, mm. the you know, Huawei, the Huawei tour of southern southern China yeah. is, is is not a good look yeah. at, at the moment. So having an Australian company with Australian money supported by the Australian government and by Australian uh, businesses is a good way of doing that. And Linda Jakobsen, who's the uh, founding director of uh, China Matters, knows more about China than, you know, many people uh, in this in this country, and could put together really good programs mm. uh, involving not just government uh, officials, but people from other parts of society as well. So it's a, it's a terrific program, and it was a uh, a really great shame when the Chinese uh, embassy decided to pull the plug uh, on this. I really can't understand why. Um, you know, they've had far more negative publicity out of cancelling mm. uh, if uh, Hasty and Patterson had come come back and even if they'd, you know, made critical yeah. comments on their return. And then, of course, you point to the, uh, <laughs> to the press statement that, that they issued and that odd expression, uh, you know, asking to to repent <clears throat> um as as you know um xc chong who's uh you know helps us with research pointed pointed out very interestingly that the the uh, the chinese uh, you know the the accurate chinese tra um, translation is more sort of something like reflect upon it's the sort of thing that parents uh, say to their recalcitrant yes. kids you know yes. you, you've done this really bad thing now i want you to go to your room yes. and think about this yes yes uh, but Repentance has this sort of uh, theological dimension to it, which uh, just made it made it seem even uh, odder and uh, and wilder. So yeah, no, it, it was it was not well handled, I think, uh, by the Chinese. Okay, Alan. Well, if I can just ask one last question and try to circle back to where we began this conversation on China with on a meta angle. And this one's really a question of epistemology. Uh, amid all of these sensational narratives, sometimes very scary and surprising, you know, we have different contributions to the debate. It seems like every week a leader is making a speech. We have Paul Keating making one, Tony Abbott made one in India. We have our acting or current foreign ministers and, and prime ministers giving regular speeches as well as commentators and people like you and me on this podcast. 
And so there's just so much information out there on such a complex topic. Can you offer any advice to our listeners about how they should go about understanding these issues and forming their own views? Should they be focusing on, on speeches um, and ignoring the news, doing the opposite? And I guess, how do you decide what to read and just as importantly, what to ignore? Well, as you and I talked about before, um, I find it very very easy to ignore social media. So once I've done, <laughs> yeah. because I'm not on Twitter or uh, or Facebook or, or uh, any other uh, social media, I make the assumption that things that are important will eventually reach me and sooner rather than later mm. through the uh, through the, the sort of the filter of the regular Australian and and international media through you know think tanks like Lowy and Brookings and CSIS Council on Foreign Relations uh, through uh, podcasts uh, and you know you asked specifically about China, things like uh, China Power from from CSIS mm. or or Seneca. Mm. So I absorb all those things, but I think I'm not sort of quite as sort of buffeted by the uh, daily reporting as uh, as people who are on social media. Uh, but speeches, I think, are really important and much um, mostly ignored. It's very rare to get more than a sort of uh, sentence or two out of any uh, political speech in Australia. So I certainly pay close attention to the website of the political leaders, to their, uh, to the uh, press conferences and so on that they, that they uh, give. You know, the thing I'm really always looking for is ways of thinking about the subject. So that sort of points me in the direction usually of uh, longer of reports and uh, and essays rather than the uh, the immediate news summaries. How, how do you do it yourself? I think that the thing that I try to focus on is is expertise. Um, for a topic as big and as broad as China, no single human being is going to be an expert on everything or even many things. Yet a lot of the commentary on China is sweeping in its breadth. And that doesn't mean that valuable contributions cannot be made by non-experts. I'm trying to make a positive point rather than a criticism, and I'm, I'm definitely not telling people to stay in their lane. What I am trying to say is that I myself, I think, make efforts to seek out experts on the questions I'm trying to answer. And when I read something that is getting a lot of attention, especially, I ask myself, you know, what is that person's expertise? Is their argument relying on an assumption or a set of facts about which they do have expert knowledge? And the answers to that will go into my evaluation of their argument. But then sort of personally, I will, you know, I'll look and seek out that expertise. But often I find that the most valuable insights on Chinese politics, on the economy and on security issues, those voices that I find most valuable are often not the most prominent. Um, and it's therefore worth putting in the effort to try to find them. Anyway, let's move on uh, and quickly wrap up with a chat about Hong Kong. Now, I'm sure our listeners have been following this story, but to, to quickly update them since we I think we talked about it back in June, obviously the protests continued and violence escalated on, on both sides. You know, we have protesters who have been shot um, and two students have died, while on the other side we had some Project Beijing um, civilians being attacked and one man was even set on fire. Then this past weekend we saw municipal elections, which are normally very sedate, low-level affairs, 
But this weekend had the highest voter turnout, I believe, in Hong Kong's history, around 70%. And the results delivered a stunning rebuke for the pro-government position. I believe that pro-democracy candidates won about 90% of the seats, 385 out of 452, and about 250 seats changed hands. Now, in terms of formal outcomes, these district council seats are mainly advisory. They deal with local welfare, organising community activities and that kind of thing. And so the results won't do that much to affect the broader political relationship between Hong Kong and the mainland. But I still think they're quite informative. I want to frame my question, Alan, with some dueling quotes. The first one is from the Singaporean Prime Minister, Lee Shin Lung, who said, quote, The demonstrators, they say there are five major demands and not one can be compromised. But those are not demands which are meant to be a program to solve Hong Kong's problems. Those are demands which are intended to humiliate and bring down the government. End quote. Now, if I contrast that with U.S. Republican Senator Josh Hawley, who said, quote, Beijing continues to escalate the situation, turning the screws on Hong Kong, taking away the rights and liberties of the people there. Hong Kong's demands are not outlandish. They are asking for what they were promised, end quote. Now, the reason I use those two quotes, Alan, is because they take opposite sides on the legitimacy of the demands that are being made by the protesters. And I think they're making they're, they're doing so in quite substantive ways. And I would contrast that with the positions taken by our leaders. Foreign Minister Payne on the 14th of November gave a statement which said, quote, We reiterate our view that it is crucial for all sides, police and protesters, to exercise restraint and take genuine steps to de-escalate tensions. It is essential that the police respond proportionately to protests. End quote. Now, earlier in October, she had expressed uh, some concern at the use of emergency laws by the Hong Kong government, saying, quote, it risks inflaming a delicate and sensitive situation. But I think the, the, the best summary of the Australian position comes from the Prime Minister himself, who said on an interview on the 22nd of November, so just a week ago, with Neil Mitchell, quote, at the end of the day, it's a matter for the Hong Kong administration to deal with the civil issues there. Our interventions, overt or otherwise, don't necessarily help that situation, end quote. So that's a long setup, Alan, for the facts of the last 24 hours in which President Trump has signed into law the Hong Kong Human Rights and Decency Act, which supports the pro-democracy movement and will require the United States government annually to confirm that Hong Kong's special freedoms are being upheld by the Chinese government and a failure to do so will, um, will cause a loss of the city's special status, which would have major economic consequences. In response, the Chinese Foreign Ministry said, quote, this is, a, this is a severe interference in Hong Kong's affairs, which are China's internal affairs. It is also in serious violation of international law and basic norms governing international relations. The Chinese government and the people firmly oppose such stark hegemonic acts. End quote. That's a mouthful. So, Alan, I really just want to ask the question that Neil Mitchell um, asked the PM to you. Do we support the United States or China here? Uh, my response to Neil, I don't know what the PM said, uh, but my response would be uh, we support Australia. Uh, we don't support either China or the United States. I, 
I, I'm going to throw the question back to you, and then I'll I'll comment on what you have to say, uh, Darren. Uh, okay. So what, you know, you you tell me what uh, what we should have done. So uh, first, I'll, I'll say uh, that the PM sort of said we don't have to choose either of them, you know, and 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 went down his standard line about we have a good relationship with both and so forth and then went on to comment that Australia couldn't do much. In my view, I think before this past weekend, there was definitely a live question about what the broader public, the Hong Kong public believed and what they wanted, whether they were more concerned by the disruption being caused by the protesters and, and the violence on that side or whether they were more concerned um, either by the police brutality in response or by the question of Hong Kong's autonomy. And we, you know, in the, I hadn't seen any reliable opinion polling on this, but now we do have a very reliable opinion poll, which was the elections. And they were so overwhelmingly in support of pro-democracy candidates. I do think that strengthens the argument that our leaders should be taking a stronger stance now, we're not the United States. I don't think we should be as, as, as bombastic as, as the US Congress in, in certifying Hong Kong's freedoms. That's definitely, uh, we're, we're too small a country to do that. And so I, I don't have a precise answer. All I can sort of say is the direction of our policy should be more towards the Washington position than towards the Beijing position based on this last weekend. That might not be very helpful. It's only a direction rather than a precise point, but that's, that's where I've come down. Yeah, well, the problem problem is that governments have to arrive at precise points yes, yeah. and uh, and not yeah. directions. I mean, look, I can I think I thought that um, Senator Payne or the PM had said something to the effect in the past that we expected uh, China to live up to the commitments that mm. it had made in the um, uh, in the agreement with the uh, UK on. Uh, uh, one country, two systems. I think that's right, yes, yes. And I don't, and, and I, don't I, I mean, that seems to me to be the appropriate point now. You could even, you know, note that the views of the Hong, citizens of Hong Kong have been, have been uh, clearly expressed and we expect that uh, China will continue to live up to the commitments which it has made. But, I, but going beyond that, I don't see any great advantage uh, for either Australia or for the people of uh, Hong Kong. I actually forgot to mention, Alan, that the foreign minister did uh, make some public statements about the results. Um, she welcomed the successful conduct of the elections, and the quote was, it shows the potential for political dialogue to provide a viable solution to the current crisis. We hope that through cooperation, all the parties can work together and reaffirm the centrality of one country, two systems. So I think that's... Yeah, that's what you're sort of um, saying. Yeah, well, yeah, no, well, that's precisely. I think she has said precisely what we should have said. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I yeah, I, I, I guess I don't have anything more concrete to you, say. You want more? You want you want my you want instincts? More. My emotions want more, but I mean that's why um, you know I'm not in charge and I'm not a, I'm not a diplomat. Um, you know, I, I do put more store on on the elections, and she sort of you know she did celebrate those results, so that's not like the. That the Australian government has said has said nothing. Yeah, I mean the quote: "The record turnout shows the desire of the people of Hong Kong to have their voices heard and their willingness to engage in good faith through a democratic process." So, maybe I'm yeah. maybe I'm being too harsh. Okay, well let's let's wrap up um, with our final segment: reading, listening, and watching. Alan, any recommendations from you this week? Well, I was going to recommend a very serious book I've been reading, but your reference to spies. 
before led me to think of John Le Carre and prompted me to instead recommend Mick Heron's Jackson Lamb thrillers, the third of which I'm reading at the moment. Uh, these are set among a group of intelligence service um, discards and failures uh, located a long way from the glittering palace of the uh, central intelligence service in, uh, in London uh, and headed by a person who is the almost the exact opposite of uh, James James Bond. Anyway, look, they're they're <laughs> intelligent and witty and enjoyable and page turning, and we're coming up to summer, so I can't recommend uh, a beach read more highly than that. Okay, well, my recommendation is on the China theme, and it's a new initiative uh, by two Australian-based researchers, uh, Yun Jiang and Adam Ni. Um, and I know Yun used to work in the Australian government. Um, and it's it's a newsletter uh, called China Nakan, uh, and in it they will be looking to sort of provide um, insight and commentary on uh, on China related news each week. Uh, but I think through you know with more of an Australian slant. And their first edition came out just in the aftermath of these bombshell revelations, and I thought it was a, a valuable and insightful contribution. So I'm very excited to see what they do with it and, and as someone who is getting overwhelmed by the news um, and by by Twitter I'm finding that uh, you know, newsletters who can that can neatly summarize the news and even provide some commentary might be an increasingly valuable part of my of my diet media diet so uh, I'll put a, lo- a link uh, to there to, to where you can subscribe in the show notes and, and check it out okay well that's all for today's episode of Australia in the world as always, we want to thank AIIA intern James Hain for his help with research and audio editing, and XC Chong for research support and today audio editing as well, and Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. Thanks, and talk to you again soon.